Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what's the latest and greatest in Canadian politics? Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University, will join us to discuss that. Ukraine has asked NATO to fast-track their application to join the alliance. Will that be easy? And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Giacchini from Global News down in the U.S. Capitol. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Our weekly look at a, a number of things that are happening and have happened over the last couple of days, including Canada's response, by the way, to the uh, Ukraine request. Uh, Green Party still having their problems. And uh, a couple of days ago, Aaron O'Toole, the former leader of the uh, Federal Conservative Party, uh, sat down with John Iverson from the National Post and uh, had a one-on-one about uh, Mr. O'Toole's career and his, his run at the uh, the Prime Minister's job, which uh, he was unsuccessful with, of course, some time ago. And uh, Mr. O'Toole reiterated in that conversation what he's been saying pretty much since the election day in which he lost uh, to the Prime Minister. Uh, he still says that if it wasn't for COVID, uh, he probably would have beaten Justin Trudeau in that election. Here's Mr. O'Toole. Ideology without power is vanity. Seeking power without ideology is hubris. Canadians deserve a government that delivers exemplary management with a foundation based upon values and our decency as a country. Uh, not quite sure exactly why that justifies his, or even explains uh, why he came up short in that particular election, but uh, he expanded on it a little bit with Mr. Iverson. Uh, let's use that as our starting off point here today for our weekly look at Canadian politics. And uh, for that, we are pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, uh, always a pleasure. Uh, I hope you had a great weekend. I know the weather was pretty nice up in Ottawa, wasn't it? Hey, Bill. Yeah, I had a great weekend. It was It was lovely. I hope you did too. Oh, yeah. Aside from the student uh, parties that are going all over. The, but, I mean, that's how you got it in Dalhousie, you got it in Ottawa, we had it in Hamilton. It, it goes on and on. But uh, we'll let the, the authorities deal with that, and, and hopefully the administrations of those universities uh, deal with that. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Aaron O'Toole here. I, I guess it's not unusual, uh, Laurie, uh, you know, for politicians, especially who have come up short, as Mr. O'Toole did, to have their own version of history. Uh, but... You know, for him to suggest that COVID alone was the reason that he lost that election because there was a spike in new cases just before that and people got spooked and didn't want to go out and vote uh, is a pretty narrow-minded approach, I guess, uh, to, to his version of what actually happened. I think so. And also, I mean, he the Conservatives won the popular vote. And so it would be hard to say like, oh, you know, our vote stayed home because they were afraid of COVID or something like, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch to unpack there. The weird thing for me is I'm not sure why he thinks he should say anything about it. Why is he feeling like he needs to set the record straight or try to in his own defense at this point? Is it because he feels like he needs to respond to the fact that Pierre Polyev seems to have such a commanding lead of the party and he's trying to take this last moment to kind of rewrite history a bit so he doesn't look so bad? I don't know what someone like Aaron O'Toole is going to do in Pierre Polyev's party, to be honest. I mean, I'm not sure what, P like Candace Bergen's already saying she's not coming back. Someone like O'Toole, uh, Rempel Garner, like what What are the roles that these, um, you know, pretty high profile and very experienced MPs are going to play? Like someone like Scheer has clearly put his lot in with Polyev and has done work for him, has raised money for him. He's part of his shadow I guess it's not a shadow cabinet, but what like part of his leadership team, he's mm -hmm. announcing that the conservatives are supporting the, the GST rebates, things like that. He seems to have made the the decision to be all in with Polyev. But someone like O'Toole, 
who was pushed out, you know, when when a lot of caucus were members were supporting Polyev, is there a place for O'Toole in Polyev's party? Well, and that's interesting because in the conversation he had with John Iverson, uh, the, the, it's online, by the way, the National Post on uh, webpage. You can go and, and uh, jump into it as I did. Uh, he talked about that, and he said that he said that he asked Polyev not to include him uh, in in his uh, his uh, appointments over the last couple of days. Uh, he said he wanted rather be a freelancer. Now, that's his again. That's his version of it. I don't know. I don't even know if Mr. Polyev would want Aaron O'Toole. Uh, in in that lineup that he's got there, and so well, I guess we'll never know the real truth about who asked whom or or whatever happened in situations like that. But if it did happen that way, that's one thing. But if it's because Polyev wants to move on, that would be probably characteristic of some of the other decisions. I think the party is trying to turn the page on the progressive conservative wing, aren't they? I think they're trying to turn the page on the progressive wing, the conservative wing. I think they are trying to turn the page on this period in time where the conservatives couldn't seem to decide who their leader was and what they wanted to do. Like, I think Polyev kind of wants to just put all that to bed. And I think he really, I mean, not that anybody has any doubt about this. I think he wants to make the party his own. He wants to make the party in his own image. He doesn't want to talk about various factions of conservatism and how to bring them all together. He wants people to unite around him. And so I think for him, like it's 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 going to be a difficult thing to figure out what do you do with these veteran MPs who have a brand of their own kind of thing and who are going to be trying to appeal in very different ways. I, and I, I noticed, too, when like when Polyev first came to the House as the leader of the opposition, a lot of what the MPs on the conservative benches were saying at the time, like it seemed to me that, that like a lot of those people who were speaking in question period were making the kind of shots that Polyev would want to make himself and that Polyev has made in the past, but may not want to wear that because he's the leader now and he's trying to be prime minister. And so he wants caucus members who are going to, you know, take take agendas from him and do what he wants them to do. And I'm not sure O'Toole, Bergen, Rempelgarner are, are playing that kind of game. Like, I think they, they might be doing something different. They've, they've got their own presence in the house. And so they might be harder for Polyev to bring on side in terms of scripting, if I can put it that but, way. But you, it's interesting because I've noticed that as well with some of the comments that have come out and, and you know, the, your point about Andrew Shear making the announcement about supporting the, uh, the GST uh, rebate increases. It was an example of that, but he's taken a page from his old bosses and he, Stephen Harper did that. Uh, when oh, he yeah. took over government in 2006, uh, you know, the, the rumors were that he was this big, bad old guy who was going to have truth in the street. I mean, we, we saw the commercials. I mean, it was it was all bogus. But mm -hmm. I, he stepped back a little bit. John Baird actually was was his surrogate, I guess. Uh, he was the one that went after the, the the party, the opposition parties for the longest time. And, and there were others on the front row that used to do that, too. Jim Prentice, the late Jim Prentice and others. Uh, but uh, Harper seemed to understand that he didn't always have to be in the spotlight. He could have others do this. And, and and maybe that's what Polyev is thinking, too. Yeah, I mean, I think Polyev would be aware of the fact that if he wants to transform between, like, from being kind of the, the enforcer in the party, the person who goes for the jugular, especially when it comes to Trudeau, if he wants to shift gears a bit so as to grow his own tent so that he's more, you know, he comes across as more prime ministerial to more people because he needs to grow. So he isn't going to want to be the person whose hands are dirty all the time. He doesn't want to be slinging the mud all the time. He needs somebody else to do that. And I think it's particularly important for Polyev because a lot of his image has been built around this very feisty, you know, like kind of sharp attack approach in the House of Commons. And we see now, like I, 
I find that some of what he does in the house, some of what he does in, in press in, in press conferences and things, it's almost, and I don't mean this as an insult, it, it's almost like rehearsed, right? Like he's practiced this and he's going to, he's going to put his line down in a certain way. And he says lines that he wants people to remember. And that's different from just a kind of, you know, shoot from the hip style in the house of commons that tends to be very uh, spicy, right? Like he's, he's trying to shift. And so he needs some other people to pick up what he used to do. Well, and and that's really part of politics. I mean, that's it's it's you know behind the scenes stuff. But as, as you know from all the years you've been covering this, and as I have, uh, that's what they do. I mean, you're you're supposed to have people that will advise you, and if you're smart, you'll listen to it. You may not take it all, but you'll listen to it anyway, just to get a different perspective. Uh, most successful politicians will do that, and because you you have to carve a public image, don't you? And and, and sometimes you're going to say something uh, that you didn't really want to say in in that fashion, and that's going to come back and bite you. So. Anytime there's those those sorts of situations that are going on, there's always going to be somebody that uh, that is going to be coaching them on this, and and not necessarily telling them what to say, but more or less how to say it. Oh yeah, yeah, and we can see Polyev is making a lot of changes throughout the machinery of the Conservative Party, right? Like he's changed the lawyer, he's changed the finance person, like he's doing making, and he's obviously got his own leadership team around him. So he wants to be able to make this machine something that is responsive to him and his goals. And he wants advice around him that he can trust. And I mean, when we were looking, like you and I have talked about some of the polls ab about Polyev in particular, like one of the issues he's got is this sort of how much can he grow? Like he's still a polarizing person where people either are all in with him or they just don't like him. So he's got to figure out how to transform a bit so he can broaden his own tent. The other thing is that a lot of people still don't know him. And so that's in some ways, like that was a problem for Sheer, for example, and just trying to build that household name recognition. But for Polyev, it's possibly an opportunity, right? Given the fact that 2025 is set up to be a kind of a change election because the Liberals government would be 10 years old by then. The more people haven't made up their mind about Polyev, the more potential growth there could be. And so he can fill that space in a different way. He can show up differently. And, you know, people don't necessarily, not everybody knows that he has been this person to really kind of go at Trudeau and hold him to account. And like he, he can kind of remake himself at this point. He's still got time to do that. Uh, speaking of leaders, uh, there was a, I guess a rather complimentary piece uh, about Jagmeet Singh in the Toronto Star the other day, yeah. uh, talking about how he has matured in his role as NDP leader. Uh, and and I, I can see there's a lot of validity to that. I mean, he's he's learned as he's gone along here. But is it too late? I mean, his own party are upset with him with the deal that he made with the Liberals. Uh, they don't seem to be growing. I know they're up a couple of points in the last poll, but that's probably at the expense of, of the government at, at this particular stage. Like so many other leaders, though, you know, that, that had such promise, Tom Mulcair being one of them, it, it doesn't seem to pan out in the, in the way of popular support. What do you what do you see for Jagmeet Singh? Can he elevate this party or is this as good as it gets? This is a really interesting line of discussion. I think there's a whole there are lots of factors that are playing in here for Jagmeet Singh. I mean, he is, I think, in his, in his own right, he is a popular leader. He is um, the problem he's got is that that doesn't always seem to translate in terms of support for the party. And so something like lowering the voting age, I would have advised him to try to get that in that agreement with the liberals. I mean, maybe, maybe they wouldn't have gone for it, but he's popular among younger people. He's got growth potential there. And so why not build a voter base that is going to be a bit more responsive to him so that it's actually going to be able to change the results in terms of some seats. He might I mean, if there's real voter fatigue with the Liberals, and I think there is and will be, he may have an opportunity to build 
in that moment to take some of that credit for what's happened, you know, in terms of dental care, whatever we, whatever else we get between now and 2025, he might be able to spin that into something. He's, he's dealing with the fact that some people just, many people have it in their mind that the NDP are not going to form government. They're not, you know, and so therefore, if you're a strategic voter, you're not going to cast your lot with the NDP. 2011 was a total anomaly. Now, on, on, on one hand, it took Jack Layton eight years in the leadership to get to the point where he was the leader of the official opposition. And as it turns out, Jagmeet Singh will be leader for eight years in 2025, if all things are equal. But the thing in 2011 was weird, right? Like that was the collapse of the bloc, the collapse of the NDP, in, or, or sorry, the liberals in Quebec, and the NDP being smart enough to be in the right place at the right time, say the right things. And they really built that win in 2011 from Quebec. Is Singh going to be able to do that? No, definitely no. But can he find winning conditions of his own that would help him to build in 2025? I think there's enough here that the party will probably give him a shot to do that. It's an interesting dynamic developing between he and Polyev. What about what if Polyev won the most seats in 2025, but not a majority? Do he and Singh work something out? Is Singh open to that kind of thing? Like, so there's, I think there's, a, it's an interesting place for Singh. I think he's got some growth potential here that he hasn't seen before. And there's a, a you know, interesting dynamic again between he and Polyev and how they both stand to gain and win. Win looks different for the two of them, but they both stand to win for uh, from voter fatigue with the Liberals. Yeah, it's it's interesting to watch. And, and the 2011 election was a compare, I think, a very apt comparison to this too. And, and Jack Layton was a very shrewd politician. I'm, you may remember the leaders' debates. Oh. They, they were. Uh, you know, he gave one answer to the referendum in English and a different answer in the French debate, totally different, the about face, because uh, he was playing to that crowd and it paid off. Uh, yeah. But as you say, that was a one election thing. That was an anomaly. Here's here's, though, if, if under under the listing of opportunity lost for the NDP and Mr. Singh, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, they got their dental plan in there and they've got their their hopefully their pharma care. They'd like to see that happen. But the one I think they blew here, Laurie, was electoral reform. Me too. Because that's been a big plank of the NDP. Uh, and I got to tell you, if we still have first past the post, and it looks like we're going to going into the next election, the NDP and the Liberals could get wiped out. I mean, it, it could be like that Brian Mulroney victory from years ago. Uh, but if there's a different voting system, they got a shot at still having some power there. And I, I'm, I'm really amazed that he didn't ask it. Maybe he didn't. And they just said, no, that's a non-starter. But it certainly would have changed the dynamic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, th I think it was a major miss that Singh did not put some element of democratic reform, if not electoral reform. And I think, you know, it's short-sighted on all their parts that they didn't kind of deal with that in earnest. But if that's what they've both indicated that they have support for, and the liberals walked away from that and, mm -hmm. you know, like the NDP could have picked that back up and made it something that, that they really stood for, you know, and that would have been something that as opposed to, you're backing up the liberals on what they would have done anyway. The electoral reform thing would have been like, okay, that is absolutely an NDP contribution. They have got some, you know, they've got some real stake and sway in this agreement. Anyway, they didn't do it. But I, they're putting up uh, the lower the voting age as a private members bill now. And I just think it should have been in the agreement. That would have been a key piece for them. Well, exactly. Uh, you know, anything. I mean, let's face it, all three political parties don't use first past the post to elect leaders. Uh, and I know the, the the conservatives would would oppose any move towards electoral reform in the federal election. 
but between this coalition, and I, I know they don't like that term, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, that what it is, they could have done that, and and they're not going to get it done now. I wouldn't think anyway. But like I say, twenty twenty five is a long way away, and I'm sure there's some mountains to climb before we do any sort of talk about the next federal election. Uh, Laurie, as always, thank you so much for this. Always enjoy our conversations. Uh, have a great week, and we'll talk again uh, soon. Perfect. Take care. You too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, been a very busy three or four days, of course, doing with the Ukraine war. There's a lot of stuff going on in the battlefield that I want to discuss. And then, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin late last week, of course, uh, basically taking over uh, the occupied parts of Ukraine and saying they are now part of Russia. And uh, it's I guess the, the, the most recent was uh, yesterday when uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky basically said, look, we, we need in on NATO and we need it now. Uh, it's in- going to be interesting to see just what kind of a reaction we get from that. Uh, on the field, uh, Ukrainian tanks are fighting Russian forces, of course, in the Donbass region and holding their own despite the Kremlin's attempts to illegally annex those territories around them. Charles Deledesma has the latest report. A Ukrainian T-64 Soviet-made tank fires while camouflaged in trees. Units have kept up patrols in their Russian-built tanks, some of which they say are captured from a Russian unit. The city of Bakhmut lies within the Ukrainian control area in the Donetsk region, very close to the border with Luhansk, which remains entirely occupied by Moscow. An overwhelming majority of Bakhmut's civilian population have left the city that has come under regular shelling since June. Kiev's forces have made recent gains around Lyman, some 40 miles further north, on the back of a successful counter-offensive in recent weeks. I'm Charles Duladesma. Well, and we heard yesterday, of course, that uh, the Ukrainian flag is flying over Lima once again, too. So uh, it's, it's interesting to see uh, the way the Ukraine forces are moving on this. So where are we going on this? And because there's, there's the political aspect, certainly, but the, uh, there's the, the loss of life and the desecration of, of this wonderful country uh, that's happening because it's now a war zone. Uh, to put some focus on this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Uh, thank you. Good to be with you, Bill. Let's start with the annexation, if we could, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the other advances the Ukrainian forces are making right now. Uh, the, the annexation proclamation such that, uh, that Putin made, it was done in, in typical Putin style in a grand hall filled with uh, his supporters and uh Although it's being characterized by many people as a desperate act by a desperate man, he, he sees what's happening on the battlefield there. And this is, I guess, to a certain extent, his way to change the channel and start talking about this element of it as opposed to what's happening on the battlefield. Uh, is, is it convincing the Russian people that they're still on the right track here? The announcement that he made that this, these will now be Russian territory forever, uh, that was part of the announcement, does two very important things. Perhaps we talked about them before. One is that it uh, justifies the nuclear doctrine of the of, of Russia. The nuclear doctrine of Russia says that uh, they will not use nuclear weapons except in the defense of uh, an existential threat to the motherland, to to the existence of the state. Now that state <laughs> includes these four regions which means you'd better not fire into them because we might consider that an existential threat. There's another, uh, and I'd like to come back perhaps to the nuclear issue. It's, it's mm-hmm, the overwhelming certainly. 
uh, overarching issue. But the other one was all these new recruits that he's calling up, the conscripts, under Russian uh, law, apparently they're not permitted to be used outside the territory of Russia. <laughs> so now those are, they can now be sent to the front if they are willing to go. Uh, and, and so there's a buildup there because of what's happening on the battlefield. Uh, everybody has condemned this. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, President Biden, other world leaders uh, have jumped on board right now and said this is wrong. This is this is a, a, an abuse of power in situations like this. Uh, the the question obviously here, I mean, it is okay. What are you going to do about it? Yes, the EU has said will not recognize them. The G7 has said any state that recognizes these little artificial sham statelets will be sanctioned. Uh, and so forth. The What are you going to do about it is indeed the question is, if they are recognized as Russian territory by outsiders other than Ukraine, uh, it would change the battlefield. But so far, Ukraine has said, we consider that Ukrainian occupied territory. And all the indications are that, um, keeping in mind that the big issue all along has been right from the outset, that as President Biden repeatedly over and over again said, we do not want World War III, we do not want to go directly into confrontation with Russia. NATO will not, the U.S. will not go into direct confrontation. Now that this uh, territory has been considered to be Russian territory, what will that do on the battlefield? And so far it appears to be no change in tactics at all. The uh, Ukrainians continue to make advances not only around, uh, as you pointed out uh, in the introduction around Lehman, that is preventing, uh, let's, let's remind ourselves where we are on this battlefield. This was uh, supposed to be a phase one, one week war, take Kiev and incorporate it in Russia. That didn't work. Phase two of the war was now we'll take all of the Donbass and uh, we will make it part of, part of Russia. But no, uh, the Kharkiv uh, breakthrough, the territory they're claiming, uh, they cannot, uh, the Russians cannot occupy all of the Donbass, apparently. In fact, they're losing territory there and in the south. Now, in, uh, the, today, we have uh, phase three, this, uh, you know, this annexation and saying you'd better not fire on us or else. So we are into that situation at the minute. And and with that in mind, uh, as you say, it hasn't initially changed the Ukraine strategy. I mean, they've, they've got their targets and they seem to be achieving those. Uh, do you do you see a resurgence of, of Russian activity here? In other words, are they are they going to be emboldened and, and try to be more aggressive now? Yes. Well, the whole idea was uh, all along to protect the Russian heartland, but Mr. Putin protect the Russian heartland from the reality of war. The losses on the battlefield were so severe that his military advisors have told him, "No, we need more. We need people. We need manpower. We need troops." So he went ahead with his mobilization, which is bringing the war home to the heartland. And as we know, uh, leading to big pushback so that uh, now people are fleeing the country. There's an estimation that more people have fled the country, <laughs> that draft age boys uh, have fled the country than were initially involved or has ever been involved by the number of troops already invading uh, Ukraine by Russia. So the, the pushback now is making this war very real. I, I am very concerned about the nuclear dimension. I'm concerned we'll run out of time if we don't talk about it. The, the um, response to the annexation by Ukraine, as I think you pointed out, was immediately within a half an hour to say, okay, we now want expedited 
admission to NATO. This was done for Sweden and it's done for uh, Finland. We want to now expedite our membership into NATO as a response to these uh, to the annexation, because otherwise uh, we can be attacked uh, from these from these territories and nuclear weapons might be used. Our only protection would be inside NATO. And now what's going to be the response? Nine states have said, uh, all the Baltic states and some others have said, we support this admission. But they didn't say expedited. Canada has said, oh, we've always said uh, since 2014, uh, it's an open door policy. The Secretary General of NATO has said this, oh, it's an open door policy. We, we will not close the door. But in fact, the door has been closed. It would be a major change, a major change if NATO... Uh, does admit very, very quickly Ukraine. Uh, the United States has just closed that door very gently, saying we absolutely support Ukraine on the battlefield, but we separate that. Now is not the time uh, to talk about admission to NATO. I'm simplifying and clarifying what they're saying, but that's, mm -hmm. that's the position. But there's no way uh, I, th that they can really do this, uh, uh, you know, because if they do, I mean, that puts them right in the middle of the war, doesn't it? I mean, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all, uh, and, and the attack is ongoing right now. I mean, uh, there's no way that Biden wants to get into this, no way that NATO wants to get into this. They don't want to be fighting Russian troops on the battlefield. Uh, so yes, I, the yes. answer really here seems to be, yes, we support this uh, uh, application for Ukraine. Uh, as soon as this war is over, we'll have a serious discussion about it, but not until then. Yes, what, what you're saying is exactly what uh, Mr. Putin is hearing. Mr. Putin said, okay, I'm raising the stakes. Uh, we are now going to threaten nuclear war. We are in annexing these territories, and nobody better do anything about it. And basically, in short form, the answer is no, we're not going to do anything about it. Not, there will not be a pushback um, in that regard. So that what Mr. Putin undoubtedly is hearing is in a game of chicken, he's winning that game. Until his next move. And uh, there's going to be pushback here. I mean, as you said, uh, the, the NATO forces and the Americans especially, I guess, are going to continue to supply arms to Ukraine, who seem to be doing relatively well on the battlefield. It's a limited area. I mean, people have to understand the scope of where, what's happening here. Uh, it's not as if they're pushing the Russians back over the border, back into Russia. I mean, but they're, they are having some success here. Elliot, what happens when they start moving into these areas that are quote-unquote, you know, annexed? Uh, do the Russians take that as an attack on their homeland and, and respond in kind? Or is this just another element to the battle that's been going on for seven or eight months now? Well, it's been going on since 2014. The, uh, yeah, really. Will they respond in kind is the issue. If they respond in kind, that is military to military, uh, the that's been the game since 2014, and Ukraine has done very well in this. Except we ask to emphasize they have the the only boots on the ground. The only deaths are, are among Ukrainians, so that uh, we can admire the advances and the strategic moves and the pushing back around Kharkiv. They actually did put the push the Russians back across the border. The response by the West and particularly by the U.S. is we will just steadily increase the degree of lethality and the reach and the scope of the weapons we're providing 14 more high mars and a lot of other uh, equipment is now going in but it is still a ukrainian war fought with western and nato arms against the the might of russia the russian the the, the question now is as you put it is very very clear if the fight is brought to those areas and the ukraine undoubtedly will do so and i i think 
will not, will not be told by the West, and particularly the U.S., don't go there, that battle over Donbass will continue, then what will uh, Mr. Putin do? If the battle starts to go well for him, I was, I was really struck by uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, an oligarch that was the number one oligarch in, in uh, Russia, and then he fell out. He was the richest man in Russia, fell out of favor, was put in jail for 10 years. Now he's living in London. He said this, and I think it's an interesting comment. Will nuclear weapons be used? And the answer by this very informed person said, the mobilization bill is instead of using nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons. So if the battle goes well, and it will continue, those statelets will be attacked. Uh, if it goes well for the Russians, they don't have to use tactical, tactical nuclear weapons, but they might. In fact, he said, if Mr. Putin thinks he's going to lose this war, and perhaps his life as a result of it, he will use tactical nuclear weapons. And I've been saying uh, to my classes and perhaps on air, tactical nuclear weapons is an oxymoron. There's, it's either tactical or it's nuclear. Being a mm-hmm. little bit nuclear, well, you can fill in the uh, that phrase. Yeah, you know the rest of the metaphor, yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, you, you don't go, it, it, General Petraeus just said, well, it doesn't have to be tit for tat. If, if they use tactical nuclear weapons, we'll just take Crimea away from them and attack will destroy Russian forces on the ground. The idea that this is not an escalatory, almost an inevitable uh, escalatory uh, moment, if tactical nuclear weapons are used, I, I think is uh, wishful thinking. Uh, and we just should remind our listeners, by the way, General Petraeus is not calling the shots at the Pentagon these days. No. I mean, that's that's his opinion that's uh, as somebody who has, ex, you know, extensive medic, or, uh, me, you know, military experience. But uh, he's not speaking on behalf of the administration or anybody else at this stage, too. But it's 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 a conundrum now for, for NATO and especially for the United States uh, to watch this happen. And, and just, you know, what do we do in situations like this? And you got to figure uh, there's some pretty intense discussions going on behind closed doors at the Pentagon about what they're supposed to do to react to this, uh, because they don't want to get sucked into this thing. But it looks like Putin's trying to get them to do that. Yes. In fact, that was a question that was raised. Do you think Mr. Putin is trying to entice NATO? Uh, and I, I don't I think the answer to that is no. Uh, the last thing Mr. Putin wants is a direct confrontation with NATO. Uh, and he's been trying to avoid that until now. So the. Um, the war that's going on right now is, is, is a real war. And I think everything President Zelensky says is true, that uh, if this is won by Russia, they will not stop at Ukraine. Uh, the whole idea that Ukraine is not a state and that you can change borders by an invasion and an occupation uh, is back on the agenda. And all the states around the world and members of the UN, even those states that uh, are saying, hey, look, this is really a European war. We're not... We're not concerned. Us in the third world, we, we're, we're used to this, the imperialist powers, etc. If this is legitimized once again, you move across borders because you want to occupy and eliminate a neighboring state, then we are back to a, a world we thought was now behind us and that the United Nations was put in place uh, to prevent forever. But it, we are in a moment that is at least the most serious nuclear threat since the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we got out of by a mixture of good diplomacy, a wake-up call to both parties, Russia and the U.S., and a lot of good luck. But uh, luck is not a strategy, as the Secretary General of the United Nations has just said. 
Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be, I think, a very eventful week. We'll see how this rolls out in the next little while. Elliot, thank you as always for this. Really appreciate your time today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. You take care. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the devastation that uh, we've seen in Florida over the last couple of days. The, the, the pictures are just horrific about the damage that's done and uh, the impact it's had on that state. And uh, uh, to talk about that and a number of other American political issues, I'm so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, who is the Washington correspondent uh, for Global News. Uh, Reggie, first and foremost, thanks for joining us today. I know how crazy it's been for you the last three or four days. You were on location uh, down in Florida. Uh, talk to us about what you saw, that, a, a, a bird's eye view of exactly what was going on about the devastation. It must have had an impact on you. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Uh, I mean, the, the devastation by the time we made our way into Fort Myers uh, late last week, um, it was it was breathtaking to, to see um, ships, uh, yachts, giant fishing boats that had been picked up and deposited 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 meters away from the coastline, pancaked on top of each other. Some of them pancaked on cars, some of them sitting on businesses. Um, you know, you, you could see how the sheer uh, destruction of water kind of played out across Fort Myers. We went further down towards San Carlos Island, where we saw homes completely obliterated. The home next door was built a little bit, uh, you know, uh, a little bit more recent, and it was standing with relatively minor damage only to the bottom levels but to see you know block after block and really city after city and we were even driving inland and seeing some of these neighborhoods um, under feet of water um, it really was a remarkable scene it reminded me of bill when i was in uh, mayfield kentucky last year for the tornadoes that blew through it was Mm -hmm. that kind of damage that we saw from this hurricane what you would expect from a monster f3 f4 f5 tornado you talk to some of the residents too. What's what's the attitude? What's the feeling there? Is they, is they basically dig out and, and some of them coming back to their communities and, and and finding this kind of devastation? Yeah, I mean, look, we talked to some families who took refuge on the top floor of their house because that was basically as high up as they could go, and the water was reaching sixteen feet. They were up seventeen feet on that floor of their home. Um, but they told us that some of their neighbors uh, on properties that they had down towards um, the water at Fort Myers Beach decided to. To stay uh, and they decided to stay number one because they didn't believe the storm was going to be as strong there was a lot of models that predicted the storm going in a lot of different directions and some people just didn't have faith in the science others simply didn't have the means to leave uh, because you know sometimes the economy can play uh, cannot play in your favor and it's just impossible to get inland others simply didn't want to leave they felt that that was their home that they they had a right to be able to stay there and ultimately you know from some of the people we talked to they they know some of their neighbors didn't make it through this storm. And it really does go to show that uh, there is still, um, you know, almost an insistence to believe that things aren't going to be as bad as they can be. And then here we are today hearing from government officials in Lee County begging people to get off the island now simply because it's not safe and there's no access to power or water or, or food. And there might not be for a while. And people still don't want to leave. Um, you know, it, it, it's a remarkable, remarkable thing to see what kind of goes through people's minds before and after a storm. Well, and, and your point's well taken, but, you know, it's it's one thing for Tom Brady to, you know, put his family on a jet and, and fly them over to Miami for the weekend, and because he can do that. He can afford it. Uh, but you talk to some people that, that just simply say, we, do, we don't have a vehicle. Uh, we don't have any means to get out of here. Uh, and they just have to, you know, get the plywood if they can even afford that and, and just ride it out. It's it's. I, I know that, okay, it's hurricane season, and yeah, these things happen. But at the same time, 
when it happens. Uh, you tend to forget, I guess, after a little while, although, you know, you look at some of the devastation that's been caused in Florida over the last number of years. And, uh, you know, I, I sit there and wonder, well, how can people actually live there? Because when this happens, it, it well, as you've seen, it tears a whole community apart. It, it, it goes beyond that, too, Bill. It doesn't tear a community apart. It can tear an entire state apart uh, and it can tear a, a country apart. Because, look, at the end of the day, these are storms that are massive. There is always going to be a property loss. There is always, unfortunately, going to be a loss of life. And politics is eventually going to play into that. The state is going to need tens of billions of dollars in order to recover from this because insurance uh, simply you know, doesn't exist for, for nearly a majority of the state because of um, a whole series of other problems. Uh, but this is going to be a costly event. And now it's going to be a fact of will there be enough political support in order to give Florida and Puerto Rico and the southeastern United States what it needs? And if you go back in time, Ron DeSantis voted against um, recovery effort bills for when Superstorm Sandy hit uh, the Northeast, you know, back more than a decade ago. And now he's going to have to go to Congress and say, look, my state needs billions of dollars. And this is going to potentially lead to a fight. So you have the heartache happening in these cities. You have heartache happening across the state. And that potentially could lead to more heartache if Congress doesn't step up because they turn this into a political fight. Do you get the sense, though, Reggie, that uh, that DeSantis is, is trying to play nicely now with the Biden administration? And and by the way, he won't call President Biden President Biden by name uh, because that seems to run contrary to what he wants you know to believe with the you know the, the fixed election. But he he is seeking help from the Biden administration. He's not groveling necessarily, but he seems to be a lot more cooperative than he was a couple of weeks ago. Of course, and it's because he understands that the money is needed. And look, the president unlocked federal funds in the days before this storm hit. So that money was going to come in. FEMA was going to be there. But it is in these times, despite the fact that there might be political turmoil in asking for, you know, Congress to appropriate a certain amount of money, you're always going to find opposite um, ends of the political spectrum getting along with each other in a time uh, of crisis. We saw this happen, um, you know, with President Tr former President Trump in states that were impacted um, that might have been Democratic-led or just might have been, you know, opposing Republican-led. Uh, there, there is a moment of camaraderie because they understand, A, uh, that this is a crisis, but B, that optics are going to play into this. And Governor, De uh, Governor DeSantis understands as well that he is now on a national stage here, more so than he was just kind of going back and forth um, in the political rhetoric with, with Donald Trump. With, um, with Florida now in the, the, the kind of aftermath of this hurricane, watching the cleanup effort, watching FEMA's largest ever search and rescue operation take place, he understands that his words are going to be scrutinized if they are said incorrectly. So he's playing nice with the administration because also there is an election coming up and, and we have to face it, Florida is a semi-purple state. There is a chance here that Democrats could vote more than Republicans. So, so Ron DeSantis has to play right here. Reggie, uh, as you've been reporting, the president's going to visit Florida and Puerto Rico uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, here's hoping when he goes to Puerto Rico, it just doesn't throw paper towels at the residents like Trump did. But the, the concern here, especially in the Puerto Rico situation, you, you talked about the politics between DeSantis and, and the Biden administration. Uh, there were tons of stories that you guys reported about about corruption within uh, Puerto Rico, that a lot of the money that was supposed to be allocated for past hurricane damage uh, never really got to where it should get. Is, or is there a concern there that, that, that the money they're going to send down there is going to be used properly? 
I mean, look, there's always going to be a concern that money is is being um, appropriated and then spent uh, spent rather uh, improperly. Uh, and this really has been kind of a concern for Republicans into how uh, Puerto Rico is managing the money that's being sent there. Because, again, for, you know, just for reference, Puerto Rico is not a state, but it is a territory mm-hmm. of the United States. And therefore, it does get um, financial compensation. And sure, the president going there is going to mean a lot to this um, to this island. It does show that Washington has not forgotten about it. But at the end of the day, you know, the corruption inside uh, Puerto Rico exists at the political level and it exists at the utility level, too. I mean, Puerto Rico finds itself in the dark for months and months at a time, even when there's not a hurricane, uh, because funding is not um, you know, done properly and, and corruption does play a significant role uh, across the island and how it operates. Um, you know, so, you know, whatever happens, how it decides to move forward. I mean, that's going to be for the island to figure out and for Washington to try and get in and out of it if it can. But the president visiting Puerto Rico, the president visiting um, Florida, at least is a monumental move in showing that there is support. There is support from the mainland, from Washington to help residents get over this. And, and you know, whether or not po- politics plays into that, you know, that's something that's just going to happen or it's not. Well, let's pivot into the politics if we could. And it's it's an unrelated issue, but it's still an issue that's, well, I, I maybe got bumped off the front pages this week because of what's happening with the the, the, the hurricane situation. But it, it's the Donald Trump circumstance. And, and I know that there have been a number of, ex-FBI agents and former prosecutors that are, are screaming at the fact that this uh, this one particular judge seems to be holding proceedings up. Uh, you know, there's even chance now, I guess, that especially the person that she appointed to oversee these things uh, is getting awfully frustrated with some of her rulings in this. But this falls right in play, as you've been reporting for months now, if not years, though, Reggie. The, the Trump playbook is delay, 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 and that seems to be what's happening here. Absolutely it is, because when in the past, when Donald Trump does something, if it appears that the walls are closing in and that there's no way out, you throw a stick in the spokes of the bicycle, you flip it over, and then you have to get up and kind of start from where you were. And that's where we're headed right now, especially, you know, with the myriad of investigations that are ongoing into Donald Trump, whether it has to do with, um, you know, Georgia overturning the election or or state level issues or the January 6th hearings um, about the Mar-a-Lago crisis. That is kind of the most pressing matter uh, that the former president is facing. And to now be getting in the way uh, by creating delays, by trying to stop the special master that he wanted put in place in the first place from being able to access certain things, from going to this judge and asking her to kind of do them a favor by by slowing things down, to have this judge now getting in the way of the Department of Justice's ability to be able to look over uh, documents that might not be classified, but might shine a light on you know the mixing of these documents. How did that happen? Did it mean other people were involved in this? The fact that she's playing along with Donald Trump, extending this out, pushing it beyond the midterms, making it now no longer a potential election, um, you know, talking point because the election will be over by the time some of this comes to light. This is expected from the former president. It frustrates Democrats. It even frustrates some uh, Republicans. But if there is somebody willing to go along with Donald Trump, it simply gives him another win and it gives everyone else something else to complain about. But but as you've been reporting, and I've heard this from so many other people that, as I say, have some knowledge of what goes on in the processes, uh, it just seems as if the rulings from the judge here are being written by Trump's and his lawyers. I mean, because most experts look at these things and say they have no basis in law. Uh, she's simply doing this because she's doing a favor to the guy that gave her the job. Well, we also, yeah, that, that, and that's the big point here, is that Trump specifically sought out this judge who is younger, who has less experience, but who was given this position 
by the former president. So are we looking at, you know, an unspoken of quid pro quo here? Is there something that can be spoken of that goes beyond just, you know, this happens to be the rulings from this judge? Those are really going under scrutiny right now. And that's what's keeping this case um, front and center and keeping the pressure building not only on this judge, but also on the former president and on his legal team, uh, because there were very clearly uh, things done wrong here. We've heard that from uh, Republicans and we've heard that from the Department of Justice. But this 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 judge is simply trying to do things to, uh, you know, appeal to Donald Trump and whether that maybe works in her favor. If Donald Trump were to become president again, you know, this could simply be paving a path to put her in a potential good light with with uh, with the former president if he becomes president again. Um, but the longer these delays go, the more it hurts Democrats case, the more it gets in the way of the Department of Justice doing what it needs to do. But the more it simply shows in the future that if you do something wrong, you may not have to face any consequences for it. Uh, I got a couple minutes left, and uh, let's segue. I'll use that word consequences now that you're back in Washington. Ginny Thomas, uh, the wife, of, uh, of course, of U.S. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, caused quite a row last week with her testimony that she basically is, is a, an election denier. Uh, she doesn't recognize Joe Biden as the president, she thinks the election was stolen, uh, Donald Trump should still be the president. Uh, outlandish comments from somebody who's, uh, whose spouses are sitting on the Supreme Court and supposed to be an impartial arbiter in situations like this, what, what's what's the outcome of this? What's the feedback on the Hill about what's going to happen here? Well, I mean, look, not only does she say that she doesn't speak to her husband about what's going on, which, you know, you have to take that with a, a grain of salt. This is also somebody who attended the Stop the Steal rally uh, on January 6, 2021. This is somebody who has openly talked about irregularities in the 2020 election and went so far as to uh, send text messages to people in the administration, including the former chief of staff uh, to Donald Trump. So I think that there are going to be significant concerns as to what kind of pressure there might have been, what kind of conversations may or may not have taken place. And again, it is hard to say whether or not she didn't talk to her Supreme Court justice husband about any of these matters. Uh, I think that there is going to be a, a legitimate interest here from the public to have some of these comments put um, on the record if and when we can get another January 6th here. Hearing. The last one delayed, obviously, for the storm. But with the clock ticking and a report still due, uh, whatever was said during this uh, during this um, bit of testimony here, on top of other people who are set to testify, this really could potentially become a game changer. Absolutely. It's going to be a very pivotal week, I think, in Washington this week. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for this. We'll be watching for your reporting on Global National through the course of the week. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent, back in Washington now after reporting this past weekend from the devastation down around Fort Myers uh, with hurricanes, damage, and the, and the things that have gone on there the last couple of days. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.